discussing the commodities markets, what's happening and why. We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors and the companies they're investing in. You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisbee. Bob Hoy is Chief Financial Strategist for Institutional Advisors. He writes their weekly overview, Pivotal Events. He's a market historian and one of the most popular guests we've had on our show. Uh, I'm talking to him on Wednesday, February the 5th, 2008, on a day when gold is down, the S&P is down, everything except my trousers is down. Bob, welcome to the show. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad this doesn't have video. (laughs) (laughs) That's one of the beauties of radio. Yes. Yes, Bob, why don't we start? I mean, uh, what's going on? Well, we're in a a credit contraction, and that contraction started in May last year when the yield curve turned from inverted – when it's inverted, it says the boom is on, and when it turns to steepening, it means the boom is off, and mm-hmm. it's been steepening on and off since. The other part of the volatility that came in is that suddenly, where everybody thought there was no risk, credit spreads started to widen, and they have been widening to recent. So that then started to remove the a structure underneath the stock market, the bull market for stocks. And often you see on this kind of a market where you have the uh, credit market lead the stock market, and then the stock market leads the economy. So what you had as the credit markets turned, it, as I said, removed the, the, the foundations from the stock market, but then you have a lot of People in the equities market, uh, they look at earnings and they look at stocks and they look at the Fed and they don't look anywhere else. And all if you if you keep in that loop, everything's wonderful until the shock uh, comes around. So then what you want to look at then is you have a divergence between what's going on in, in the credit markets against the stock market. And then the stock market rolls over and it can be a technical decline and that was sort of began – Seriously, in October, and then shortly after that, maybe around Christmas time, they started getting some poor economic numbers. So then you have the condition whereby the stock market is deteriorating along with the fundamentals in the economy, and then that can continue on a typical contraction for some time, and then with considerable irony, the stock market will bottom oh, maybe six to nine months before the economy bottoms. So at the start, you have credit markets first, then the stock markets, then the economy. Then you have harmony with everything going bad at the same time, and then when it bottoms, the stock market and the credit markets improve first. Then it's a long time before you get any improvement in economics. So that's the big picture. On the nearer term, the... Uh, A period of heavy liquidation that started uh, at the end of of October, and that was the high for the NASDAQ Composite Index, which is a pretty big index. Mm -hmm. And it started to weaken, and then it ended on uh, January 22nd. That was a horror show week where they discovered that society, Sockgen had a problem with a rogue trader, 
$7 billion loss. So that was a period of forced selling, and it ran into 55 trading days. And uh, during the summer, in one or two editions, we mentioned that it looked like at some point the stock market would get in trouble. And if it did get to the point of heavy liquidation, it would last for 55 trading days. Previous examples would have been, um, oh, the 1987 crash. But it was within a very robust economic expansion, and the credit markets weren't too distorted at that time. But more examples occur within the initial break in the stock market that ends uh, a very good bull market. So, well, 1929 was another example that ran for 55 trading days. And then you had the first bounce. Now, this bounce on our work can run through in, into, into March. But out of that week of of January 22nd has been straight up, straight up for the banks and straight up for almost everything. And it got too overdone on the upside. So that very heavy low of a few weeks ago has to be tested. Now, obviously, it's being tested here today. That's very interesting, Bob. Uh, 55 is, of course, a Fibonacci number. I think it is, you know. I never stopped at it. We just we just count the days off and uh, and impressed with at times in in extreme market forces that they can be so regular or so methodical. And the other one is that the um, this rebound uh, once this test comes in and it should complete maybe maybe by later in the week and uh, then then it, it, it'll get another bounce up and at that point the great rescue efforts by various central bankers and Fed cut rate cuts and things like that will have been seen to have been successful. I must admit, this this down move on the S&P today has taken me a bit by surprise. I was kind of expecting this rally to take us up to the kind of mid-1400s yeah. before well, the next... The 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 rise out of, out of uh, January 22nd was straight up. Yeah. And it should have been a few steps. So now we're getting the first big correction on it. But also, it's, you know, that we don't often follow these um, the standard economic uh, numbers, but that ISM survey came out. Previous month's report was 54 and change. Under 50 is bad news. And the street was expecting 51, and it was reported at 41.9. So this was a major shocker, and it shows that the financial volatility, which we go back to August or uh, April and and May of last year, the problems in the subprime were considered to be isolated or could be contained. And uh, now you've got that volatility, let's say mm-hmm. it's a euphemism for things going wrong, <laughs> appearing in the orthodox economic numbers now. So really, the bulls have very few places to go now. Credit contraction, that spells deflation, basically. It does. But the government monetary policies, not just in the US, but everywhere, are highly inflationary. So there's this kind of, there's this this battle of the two forces, deflationary and inflationary. What's going to happen there? Well, we should note that the policymakers, like the central bankers, are usually behind 
the uh, event. Uh, for example, in 1929, the, um, the establishment considers that the major error in that bull market occurred in early August of 1929 when the Federal Reserve raised their discount rate from 5 to 6%. And they, of course, were looking at a pretty good boom at that time. And But the irony is, is that the T-bill rate got as high as around 5% in uh, in the spring. And I think it was May or June, it was already down to 4%. So market forces were saying, hey, the game's slowing down. But the Fed, being even then policymakers, um, chose to raise the discount rate. But uh, the uh, the discount rise in the discount rate didn't cause the crash and the depression. It was just market forces, and the same thing, the yield curve changed, and then you had heavy liquidations, and you have that problem now. So the um, the I think that this is going to be a major test of policy-making theory and practice. Um, they have always had an excuse when things go wrong and you end up with a bear market, but this one, they're very loud with all of the rescue packages, the coordination with the various senior central banks, discount rate cuts and, and uh, Fed fund rate cuts and everything else. And my view is that a credit contraction is obviously from too much credit. So the stimulation they're throwing into it is actually just more credit, and the problem is too much credit. Mm-hmm. And the other one is, the greatest irony of all, Dominic, that that throughout all of business history, and there's a good, well-documented all the way back to 1700, is that short-dated market rates of interest go up during a boom, and they go down, and they decline during the subsequent contraction. So here they are, that the whole of the establishment firmly believes that uh, they're going to cut rates and it's going to turn everything better again, but rates always fall in a contraction, and typically they fall at least until the bear market in stocks is over. So this this idea is just right out of thin air, and obviously those that are proponents of it have never looked at economic history, which is sad but true. So the two elements that were supposed to restore prosperity, more credit, is absurd because the problem has been too much credit. And the second one is cutting rates. And that that's going to happen anyways, whether the, the, the central bankers are going along with it or not. So it's uh, I think that, um, you know, the, the man behind the curtain is going to be taken away from the Wizard of Oz on this one. That bad? That I mean, bad. that's quite, that's rather a grim <laughs> metaphor. <laughs> well, consider it this way. The, if this one doesn't work, like if it doesn't, if, if all of this huge effort doesn't salvage the situation and restore prosperity, then you have to mark it down as a failure of the system, not in a failure of application. Like, uh, as I said, it's always absurd that the uh, establishment thinks that the crash of 1929 and the subsequent uh, uh, depression was caused merely by the Fed raising the discount rate from 5 to 6% in August of 29. You know, give me a break. But the problem is that the street 
generally knows the theories, has learned them. You've had three generations of economists memorizing all that stuff, and a lot of it isn't built on anything solid at all other than whimsical notions. And I think this one tested. So to sum this one up, Dominic, is that the establishment really believes that policymakers are going to fix this awkward condition now. But I think that the truth of the matter is is that policymakers have been the problem because they had too many people believing that risk had been eliminated. So then you could take any position to any degree of leverage, and you're going to be all right. But that then becomes the problem. So policymaking, in eliminating the concept of risk, have created an inordinate risk itself. So then I think that the uh, rather than policymakers fixing the market, I think that contraction is going to be se- severe enough that it will fix these uh, care- carelessly fabricated notions of policymaking. So I think the market, the policymakers are the problem, and the market forces will fix them for sure. <laughs> well, the, the market clearly wants deflation, doesn't it? It doesn't want inflation. Yeah, yeah, and they are making a valiant effort, And but my view is it's doubtful that it will be successful, and if the critical side, and if there is a critical side and the serious side of academic economics, some young guys, young economists are going to come along and start writing it up the way it should be, and where do you end up? Right back with the Austrian school, with von Mises and von Hayek back in the 1920s, who... Uh, did some very fine work. What's the downside in the stock market? Do you have any kind of downside targets? We haven't got a target as yet other than it is, I think, after this rebound high is concluded in in March, then you can start to put some targets on it. But I think it's going to be a severe bear market the uh, crash in the NASDAQ after the tech bubble in 2000 uh, fell to 80%, gave up 80% of their their highs. So, uh, you know, it's going to be uh, one of those. Uh, It may not be as bad as the 1929 to 1932 bear market, but that was a whole lot of downside crammed into a short period of time, whereas following the 1873 bubble, a stock bubble, and and this is one that's worth keeping track of because the U.S. was on a fiat currency then. Uh, There was a great infatuation for metal prices because you had had the Franco-Prussian War in Europe in uh, 1871. So metals were very much the forefront, and uh, you went into that one was a long five-year bear market, but it was part of a period that, senior economist eventually in 1884 described as, and I'll put it in quotations, the Great Depression. And uh, academic economists, even into the 1930s and 1940, were still analyzing the Great Depression, meaning the one that ran from 1873 to 1895, uh, until they said, oh, gee, here in the 1930s, we've got another one to describe now. So then they forgot about that Great Depression of the late 1800s. So I'm not saying that there's going to be another example like that, but we are in the conditions that led 
to such a contraction. But in those in those two bear markets that you described, the one after the dot com boom and the one after um, well nineteen twenty nine thirty two, stocks were a lot more overvalued than they are now. Well, some people pointed out that nineteen twenty nine at the high of the market, I think the PE was about eighteen to twenty on the S and P, and then uh, and then lately through through last year. The uh, uh, the orthodox side of the street was saying that the stock market wasn't overpriced because they were using the Fed model, which takes the earnings and rate of change of earnings and compare it to interest rates at the 10-year. And, uh, of course, that's vulnerable to two things. One, the earnings going down, and the other is the 10-year note going up. But it gave the comfort. It always said that the stocks were, you know, 20% undervalued or something like that. And then also in the summertime, I'm looking at the at the uh, actual PE itself, and it was at one and three quarters. So uh, it was sorry that was a dividend, but at any rate, stocks were not as dynamic or as highly highly priced as they were in 2000. But the 2000 was a tech bubble and sort of the conclusion of a new financial era. Whereas this one has been a broad-based advance in many things, including base metals and that sort of stuff. So it has a lot of similarities with 1873. But where you used various multiples to determine that the stock market was vastly overpriced in 2000, and uh, the similar uh, determinations in 07 would have said that it's not as high-priced but the excesses were in the credit markets, and that's that's where the huge excess was. So, you know, um, valuations for the stock market didn't really didn't matter on the way up in in 2000, and they they didn't much matter the last year uh, through 07 because the uh, the action was in the credit markets. And once the credit markets changed, then I think the rest unfolds. So and that would. Sorry, go ahead. Well, go on. I, I was just... Uh, j- j- finish off, finish off. Yeah. Well, I was going to say we should lead into what's going to happen with some of these commodity prices. Well, that was <laughs> that was my next question. There we go. <laughs> I mean, I noticed... Um, I, know, I know you're an old gold bug, and um, I say that with the greatest respect. It, it sounded rather derisory yeah. when I said an old gold bug, but I, I mean that with the greatest respect. Well, the old is correct. <laughs> <laughs> But, I mean, we've, we've um, had a big bit of a correction going on in gold. Um, how much more downside do you see to that? Would you generally be you know, favourable towards gold? Yeah, we put a piece out last week, Thursday, was the uh, that gold shares have been underperforming bullion move, and that yeah. was a sign that the group, the sector would correct. And then we're looking for, actually, the, the price of gold, which got at 940, uh, probably down to oh, 750 to 750. 75 on this correction and that's my colleague uh, ross clark with his usually very reliable technical work so it it makes sense to me because some of the buying in gold was certainly due to increased investment demand because of the distress in the credit markets but also some of the buying again was with the slightly weaker dollar for a bit and then the uh, recovery out of december in base metals then you had a pop-up in crude oil. So gold was kind of running for part of it for the right reason, investment demand, 
and part of it for the wrong reason, the old gold bugs, which I, that's what <laughs> I said. I'm old, but I'm not a gold bug. Um, where they bid it up on usual stories that, hey, we're going to get inflation and the dollar's going to go down and other commodities are going up. And again, um, recognizing irony wherever it exists, that when you're in a boom, commodity prices outperform gold. So where the gold bugs get on the start pounding the table, uh, it leads to frustration because in a boom, commodity prices will outperform gold. And within that, you've got energy costs. And if they're outperforming gold, then the cost of mining sort of get chewed up a bit. So, But this is where we bypass a lot of that uh, risk in, in just looking straight at the nominal price of gold is to look at the deflated price. And we use uh, our own uh, uh, commodity index on that, which when we put it together uh, 15 years ago or something like that, we tried to get it to be similar to the Economist All Items in Index with a pretty good weighting in base metals. And um, it came all the way down and to 143 in May. I should also mention that the previous high in that was 255 in the middle of 03. Now, that's when it, you came out of that um, post-bubble contraction and the boom was really getting launched by that time. So then the real price of gold came down, as I said, to 143 in May. And of interest is that it turned with the turn in the credit markets, which is a financial change. And it's now up to 225. And this is uh, probably on a cyclical bull market for the real price, which means that Commodities are going to be under have been underperforming gold and will continue to underperform gold. So, where we look at this now is that we had base metals likely to rally up until around May, sorry March, and they have been recovering. And um, then you've got this correction in gold in the nominal price. And so the next buy on gold and gold shares should be uh, an outstanding opportunity with a very long move for real reasons afterwards. Uh, we're updating a chart where I've done years ago, taking each of the huge big financial mania since, well, there's good data with the 1721, the South Sea bubble, and the pattern is fairly reliable that for two to three years before the crest of the bubble, you have the real price of gold going down, and then for some, usually about three years, sometimes it was four years, where the real price of gold went up after the and during the the post bubble contraction. That makes the gold sector very healthy after a bubble, and uh, then also uh, typically that was within a move that could last for about 20 years until. All of the excesses were wrung out of the credit markets, and then you're ready to go on. The global economy then would be ready to go on a on a major, long, long dynamic expansion again. So, but to get down to the shorter term, uh, we think gold can correct down to 750 to 775. Um, one of the ways to play that is uh, there's a in Toronto. There's a nice little vehicle. It's Horizons Beta Pro Global Gold Bear. 
and the symbol is HGD. Yeah. D for down. And that's a uh, uh, fund built on the gold stocks. And there's about a two to one leverage in it. And you uh, buy that at uh, last week at $10. And now it's up to 11 as this correction has come in. I think it'll go further. Another way to make some money in an awkward market for the precious metal sector and in a financial boom like this is that in a boom, the gold-silver ratio comes down where silver outperforms gold, and it came into, oh, 54 a few days ago. Mm -hmm. It had been out to 57 a month or so ago. And then um, if we go into a, another severe phase of contraction, would fully expect silver to, to decline relative to gold. So then the way to play that one would be to short some of the silver stocks. Uh, silver Standard, um, Pan American Silver, they trade good volume, and they also have um, options on them. And you'll buy some puts in those, and um, but you never stay too long in any of those trades like that. We've been shorting silver stocks on and off since, of November and against building a portfolio of uh, smaller cap gold stocks and so our it's, it's you that, that's responsible for the underperformance of my silver juniors <laughs> no because I haven't really we haven't really been broadcasting that one too much <laughs> because there's a there's a gold silver ratio seasonality it has a tendency to come in or decline until the middle of February. And uh, it's interesting that that uh, there's some similarities in here now to uh, the bull market high for stocks in early of uh, 1973, and that was the net free reserves in the U.S. banking system went to to a minus then, and they've recently gone to a minus now. And that was a, that was a serious bear market. But the gold-silver ratio did change in February, so, um, yeah, our, our, we're just looking at it, and we'll probably write it up, that you can probably make some money uh, by being uh, underweight silver stocks. But just to back up one second, I almost forgot it, is that for the last couple of months, our advice was to lighten up on the senior gold stocks, which were getting good action, and to then uh, accumulate smaller cap stocks on opportunities. That sort of gave us some elbow room as to, I mean, when the hell do you find the bottom and those kind of things? When, but we expect that sometime over the next three or four months that the uh, smaller cap gold stocks will then catch up to the tremendous increase in the real price that has already happened. So where it's probable you can have a cyclical contraction and a cyclical bear market for most stocks, you could probably have a cyclical bull market for the whole gold sector. And that would be very welcome. This is, uh, you're talking about this unfolding, though, after gold's gone back to below 800. I mean, you're not going to find these juniors yeah. rising oh, with no. the falling gold price. No, no. What you want to do is, and we put uh, in last week's piece, mentioned four gold fund managers. It's the first time we mentioned anything like that since since 05 and um, just to sort of say that these these fund managers 
do have the, position, the ability to be positioned in the smaller cap golds. So uh, on, a, on a decline, you can buy some of these. But then also, we're preparing a list of, oh, and I'm scared to do this one, of, of uh, junior golds themselves. But I think if we get, uh, well, we are. I've already got a list of, you know, from some gold fund managers. We just mentioned who they are, that it's not exactly our recommendation. But uh, um, for those who can play this, and also you've got a problem with the thinness of these stocks too. So. But generally, let's put it this way: we would we have been sellers of the senior gold stocks, with an eye to accumulating some very good smaller cap gold stocks. Why have the juniors been so horrendously underperforming in these well, last six months? We, the last high for those was in April May of '06. Very good surge up in those things. Lots of action, and then the real price continued to go down, and somehow the Junior stocks seem to go up and down with that real price. The other one is that you had good action in uh, the uraniums, and that went bad. Then I think a year ago in the fall of '06, you had a um, you had a pretty good play in the platinum junior stocks, and then they kind of rolled over. So a lot of the resource play in uh, in the metals. And in the golds have been just beat up, and the it takes a certain kind of of um, account uh, and participant to get involved with those. Then also you've had a number of of gold fund managers who hitherto would have been buying some of the small caps, maybe just going out and buying the gold ETF. Uh, very straightforward way to put, do it, but. Let's know. Listen, you and I both have been around the markets for a while, and you know that eventually a beat-up play is going to get turned around and move. And there was one here in Vancouver over the last few months where the company had a property in Mexico, and it's one of these large, low-grade kind of things, and they came in with some very good holes, 150 meters of a little better than one gram. The stock moved from 60 cents. I was a day late, so I had to pay two dollars, <laughs> and it went up to 380. Is that uh, Canplatz you're talking about? Yes, Canplatz CPQ. Yeah. And and then on that kind of a move, well, you got to take your money off the table and then wait for the re-entry. But that stock now, they've raised money uh, recently. Directors have been uh, buying stock out of the market on insider reports. Uh, they've got. They'll have a, a very aggressive, open-ended drilling program going, and there'll probably be some more excitement there. So that's one to watch. The other one, which we talked about in when we had that lovely interview in in London in June, was and I'd mentioned uh, Almaden, yeah. which is AM, AMM in Toronto and AAU in New York, and uh, it had a run up to 3.26, and then. That stock has a tendency to spike and it's backed off, but they have the they could be the next one that would that can start reporting some holes in the order of 150 meters of the one gram stuff in a superb property down in Mexico. This one's being the joint on it is uh, the guys from from Lundin Mining with their uh, gold venture Canadian Gold Hundred CGH. The CGH is is dead. 
lately, last week. But uh, by debt, I mean it's not trading any volume. And Almaden is beginning to trade some volume. Now, the, the drilling began in, I guess it was early November. They took a Christmas break. And there should be one or two holes probably reported sometime in this month. And the company has now, has contracted a second drill. That's a positive sign. And they are going to drill this very aggressively. So they, the kind of property that moved uh, Canplatz, the next one on that could be this uh, property that's um, joint venture with uh, Almaden and uh, Canadian Gold Hunter. Other than that, I, I don't know of anything that I'd, I'd want to mention specifically because I, those are a couple of instances that I'm familiar with. We, um, we, we talk a lot about what's going to ignite uh, the junior mining sector, and we've said it can be um, any number of things, but it could be $1,000 gold. Um, it could be a big discovery somewhere. <laughs> Let me tell you about one years ago in the Vancouver market, the junior was just dreadful. I mean, the promoters weren't making money, the the prospectors weren't making money, and even the lawyers weren't making any money. And uh, I, I was talking to a broker, and I said, you know, Ronnie, what the Vancouver market needs is a really good discovery. And Ron said to me, and says, yeah, Bob, but he said they have been holding back on those lately. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, yes. It. I would say, it, number one, you're right. It needs to have a further advance in both the real price of gold and the price, like the $1,000 price that everybody's hoping for. It also needs to have the discovery, a good one, and a number of them. And as I say, this can plants is one. I think they have a lot more drilling to do there. And then the other one uh, that I know of is the Almaden, and uh, there's a lot of drilling to be done there. And then also within Almaden, they've got a lot of other properties as well. So, Do you think there are too many junior mining companies? Oh, yeah. there was. You spent a couple of years with everybody uh, being capable of forming a company and floating it, and... Uh, Sure, too many of those, but you know it can change with a good discovery. And there's there's so much work. You see a company and you look at the board of directors and you say, "Oh, look at the talent they've got in there." There's guys that you know spent 20 years with this company or 20, and they have had experience, good experience, with some of the majors, and then have gone off into entrepreneurial side with their own companies. And you can't deny anybody, you know, anybody with a geological background going that way. Yes, there have been too many companies, but and then many of them are doing far too many financings. But nonetheless, it's a fact that the, the junior golds have been really bleak, and I can't imagine them getting any bleaker. But on the other side, I'm seeing the sunshine that will pull them up, and that's the real price and knowing of a couple of discoveries. And I think some of the mining analysts that cover a lot of the companies will be watching for um, 
this kind of a discovery, the the big one, the 150-meter yeah. hole. So. But if we get your 750 or 775 cold, I mean, yeah. it is going to get a lot bleaker in the junior sector. It will be bleak, and hopefully it does it quickly, gets it over with, and then moves on. Do you see some takeovers, high-profile takeovers? Do you see any of those coming? I don't know. I don't know. That's a corporate finance side that I don't have the time to look at, but I know that it's still going on on the base metal side, and uh, frankly, I can't believe it because the base metal prices have come down so far since July of last year. So uh, I remember watching I... your presentation and and thinking to myself, this bloke's mad. He's, he, the nickel's not going to come down like that. And... <laughs> 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 you yeah. were telling me what I didn't want to hear. No, no. Um, well, you know, you. I, I, go on. I you, think you learn to be independent of, of emotions, and yeah, we get pushed and excited and all that sort of stuff from time to time. But nonetheless, you have to fall back on two things: experience and um, and some methods. And generally, the technical methods work better than the fundamentals. Uh, I've seen. Uh, I've dealt, You know, we've been consultants to mining companies since the mid '70s. So every once in a while you see a new generation of, uh, of research guys at the big mining houses and they're all analyzing supply and demand and that sort of stuff. This mine's going to open and there's going to be this much supply. This mine's shutting down and the offtake is this. And you can't determine where the price is going to go with that kind of stuff, but everybody does it. But I found the best thing to do is you analyze the price itself and the credit markets, and if you've got those two things, it's going to give you very good guidance, and that's why in early June when I was at the Halkin um, financial uh, get-together in London, that that one, you'd ha we'd had the, the, the yield curve had turned to steepening by the end of May. So, And then you have the seasonal, sometimes you have a high for copper in March, and then, a, and then you have another high sort of in June or July. And that's the way it worked out. But the key to the presentation in London was that the credit markets were already making a very significant change. So that's why I was able then to say, um, watch for a top, and it could be the beginning of a cyclical bear market for base metals. And when we got down to the lows for base metals in December, uh, clearly a bear market. And then you look for a seasonal rally out to March, which we're getting, fortunately. Do you see um, the base metal rally continuing in the event of uh, this kind of market meltdown that you, you envisage, or do you see uh, further uh, decline? Yeah, no, I think they'll correct in here with the stock market for a week, and then then they'll make another attempt to rally up the stock market and, and the base metals. But there could be an opportunity here. I know that you and I kind of like the position in, in the metals, but uh, the grains have been sort of like the last, ticket uh, can here uh, and uh, they're the last group uh, to of commodities to be strong and wheat today has been up limit all day long the 30 cent move and but it's beginning to look toppy uh, and uh, there's a, an instrument to play that one as well and uh, I'll give you that one it's called uh, it's put out by Deutsche Bank mm -hmm. and it's it, DBA, agricultural ETF, I guess you'd call it, 
Yeah. So it's DBA on New York, Power Shares Agri Index, it's around $38. And that has puts and calls on it. So uh, you can either sell it or short it or do some puts and... But as I said, uh, you've got wheat. Yeah, wheat uh, up the limit here still. And um, but it, it's one to look at. It, the sector, the the grain sector, is looking toppy, and it should get a hit similar to the grains, or sorry, to the metals, base metals that after after July. So I, I'm quite um, bullish on um, on the soft commodities on the on your cotton and your sugar and. And uh, coffee and cocoa, even. Yeah. Well, those are have... the ones that I've got no view on those at all. Uh, although, yeah, no, I keep cotton on my screen here because I just look at it every once in a while, but I don't, and the coffee and those sort of things, sugars, no, i just really not dealing in those at all, either personally or opinion-wise or anything. So, But as I said... The last week we've said, now, what is going to be next for the downside on the commodity sector? And it looks like it will be the grains. And there's also a way of, of uh, playing it as well, rather than positioning the futures. So mm. you can do it too. Yeah, it's prob- probably a good bet. Let me ask you, um, do you have um, a kind of eventual upside target price for gold and a downside target price for the dollar? Are you kind of talking about... $2,000 gold eventually reaching its old highs adjusted for inflation kind of thing? No, nope, haven't done one on that. Uh, back in uh, November, Roth did up one and was looking for a high for gold on the on the immediate move, kind of like above ni- 905 to maybe 930, so it got to 942, I think. After this correction, we could then come up with another upside target based on technical analysis. But let's put it this way, if our gold divided by commodity index was got to a low of 143 in May, uh, definitely a double on that price. That then leaves you trying to figure out, you don't have to figure out what the dollar is going to do or what the dollar price of gold is going to do, but you know that it's going to be very favorable for the industry to have the real price going up. And so... The long-term view is that after a bubble, in a post-bubble contraction, the real price goes up at least for three years. Then you get a cyclical correction. So if the uh, the low was in 07, so we should go to 2010. And uh, there's going to be a lot of money made in the gold sector on on a on a bull market that has two more years to go. Less so for silver, though, you reckon? But silver, um, again, I'm agnostic on silver because at any time of the year and any year of the decade, the silver bulls will always show you that the supply demand is that there's more being consumed than being produced. But I've always found it's better to trade silver just off the off the price and off the credit markets. And the long history of the gold-silver ratio is that it moves in silver's favor during a boom. And then, uh, as a matter of fact, it's an indicator. The gold-silver ratio is an indicator. It kind of acts like a credit spread, and it comes down in number in a boom when credit spreads are narrowing. And then now we've had immense widening of credit spreads, 
and you've had the gold-silver ratio go from last year, what, 44 up to 57 a month or so ago, and now it's at 54. So breaking above 57 would uh, not only make you money if you were sort of long gold and short silver, but you would also use it as an indicator to say, hey, the next serious wave of liquidity problem is at hand. So there's two ways to look at the gold, gold at silver. One is something to trade, and the other is when it moves relative to gold, it's an indicator. You don't see it ever returning to 15, that gold-silver ratio? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> that was extraordinary, an extraordinary promotion. and uh, I thought it was uh, the, the historical average. Oh, 15 silver then, yeah, 15 silver have, coins uh, make a gold coin. Yeah, and in the 1700s, the gold-silver ratio was pretty tight to 16, and that was when England was more or less on a... Well, it was 1717 when when Isaac Newton at the Mint said that we're going to have a bimetallic standard, and this is the ratio. And then on each major cyclical bull market and great expansion, uh, well, let's go the other way around. On each contraction, long contraction, like the 20-year one, the gold-silver ratio goes up. So, and let me just think of memory here in the, 1840s, the bottom of that long depression, 1840s, I think it got into the 30, whereas previous high might have been 18. So on each of these huge secular changes, the ratio gets higher on the contraction, so that if you go back to the 1990-91 distress in U.S. banks, that was, by the way, due to the previous decade of lending money indiscriminately against the oil patch and against uh, real estate. And they spent all of the 80s unwinding that so that by the time you got to 1990, City Group and Chase Manhattan had to be bailed out for half $500 million each when that was a lot of money. Uh, the Fed uh, cut discount rates with that bailout and also lowered reserve requirements. And the party began, but at that horrendous contraction, when you had the savings, you got the the ratio got up to 100. Wow. Yeah, 100. So then it came all the way into 42 uh, a couple of years ago, and certainly 44 in the spring a year ago, and now it's out. It got to 57 recently, and said now it's 54. So. The next leg up for the gold-silver ratio will be probably with another bout of financial turmoil. And the problem with those who focus a lot on silver and the supply-demand analysis, it doesn't include any work on the fact that from time to time, silver, uh, the gold-silver ratio acts like a credit spread. And it does. I mean, you've got hundreds of years of it. And, and that behavior is not just new. Like you take, you can get the gold-silver ratio back uh, for decades, well, for centuries. But the trick is to have it when you know what's going on in the economy. And certainly, back 400 years ago, you knew when the booms were, and when the contractions were. And it's very, very plain that during a boom, the gold-silver ratio comes down, and during the contraction, the gold-silver ratio goes up. And that's the way it works. So I don't spend any time doing supply-demand analysis on that one.
Let me ask you, I've got two more questions I want to ask you, Bob. Mm -hmm. And the, um, the first one is um, that you mentioned earlier, the um, net free reserves in the U.S. banking system, these mm -hmm. uh, think, revelations that have come out. What, what, what opinion do you have there? It's, it's horrible. It, well, well, it's horrible. I mean, but how, how significant is it? It's extremely significant. The last time that happened was in early 1973. The high on that bull market was in January of, of uh, 1973. It was the worst bear market since the 1930s. And it was also uh, one of the worst. Uh, once, once the recession came in, it was pretty heavy-duty stuff. So, and... It's not due to Fed policy when you get this change. It is due to the banks becoming extremely reckless in their lending habits. And like anything else, it, they get into fever to lend out money and to maintain market share or grab more market share, and then it all comes back on them. And gosh, you know what the old saying is that in and uh, when the sun shines, when the sun is shining, they lend out umbrellas, and the moment it starts to rain, they bring them back in, and that's the truth of it. <laughs> but they have no—it's—it's it's human nature thing. Um, it's very difficult for a bank to be prudent in a boom because mm -hmm. they lose business. They count to go somewhere else. What so like uh... when you're broke? Sorry, just like when you're a broker, you get a little worried about, say, last summer. And you start going to cash, and the client will probably listen to a broker somewhere else and say, hey, you got to get in. Boom, you lose the account. So very difficult to do the right thing when the markets are overheated. This is, I'm going to read out an email. I'm going to try and summarize it because it's quite long. Um, but this is from George Anastasiou. And um, he says, I listened to... Uh, uh, John Rubino and Jim Paplava and Peter Schiff talking about hyperinflation in the Weimar Republic. And I have great respect for these people, but I find that the fiat money and hyperinflation discussion that these guys are currently into fails to comment on what I think is one of the most important aspects of the financial system. And that is the size and importance of the bond market, which didn't exist in Germany at the time as it exists in the US today. The bond market wasn't available to reject the monetary inflation component as it exists in the US over the last 50 years. And that's why we haven't seen hyperinflation as in the Weimar Republic, Argentina or Zimbabwe. Without rising prices, hyperinflation cannot exist. And I would suggest that if the long bond starts falling, all asset prices will be repriced in relative terms. Therefore, the hyperinflation argument will be hard to sustain. Right now, you are seeing the market and the Fed engineering a curve-steepening process to reliquify the banks. The long bond, post-arms adjustment later this year, will fall, because who's left to buy it? In that environment, how can prices be bid up? Should the long bond keep rising, then you might achieve hyperinflation. But why would you buy a 30-year instrument with a 4% yield and all the problems the U.S. has at government level? Bob Hoy, one of your past guests, seems to be the only guy I've heard who actually gets it from a historical point of view. Would you ask him what he thinks? Well, very good. He's absolutely right. That, I wrote a piece on that last week. In Germany, in the early part of the 1900s, there really was barely a money market, and there was barely a, a bond market. 
So when the experiment started in printing of money, it wasn't a credit issue. It was issued currency. It was just plain printing presses. We've all seen pictures. So, and then also uh, there were um, uh, senior economists in Germany at the time that when the hyperflation was on, they were keeping track of the prices and the rate of expansion of money and said, hey, the real money supply isn't increasing. We've got to do more. <laughs> Until somebody said, this is horrendous. And then by November 1923, they said it's nonsense. And they pegged it to a bushel of rye for a period. And then uh, it was over. And it went from four marks to the dollar to... I think it was about four trillion marks to the dollar. It destroyed the middle class in Germany, um, making them eligible for the next political experiment that came along. And we don't have that in Western economies now. You have a, a vital money market, and you have a vital bond market. And if they ever went to either through electronic or actual printing press and printing of, of money, uh, it would dislocate the bond market so badly that the policymakers would quit. Now, don't ever think that that I had thought at some time that the Fed would be responsible. No, they will have the pedal to the metal as they have now, but the market forces will deny it. And... Uh, it's also worth knowing that in 1929, during the first crash in the markets, the um, head of the New York Fed, which like today is huge compared to all other chapters, opened the discount window and exceeded his lending authority by a factor of six times. So the establishment in concluding for generations that the Fed made an error in 1929 is just so much nonsense. It accommodated when it could. Uh, interest rates went down, which some economists consider as easing. And uh, But you have a problem with the establishment. It wants to believe that the Fed system and any other central bank is infallible. And the only way that they can explain these serious contraction is to say that the guys running it at the time made an error. And that is just plain ad hominem argument that socialists tend to use where they argue against the man and uh, have to say that he made a blunder. But I don't think they made any errors in 1929 at all. And all this, this game, one of the things that you find so often, and I've mentioned so many times in this conversation is irony. And here we have now uh, Bernanke is considered to be one of the scholarly experts on the 1929 contraction and he of course has made the same this, uh, conclusions that the guys running the Fed made an error. But why limit yourself to that event? You had a bubble that blew out in 1873. You had one that blew out in 1825, 1772, and then all the way back to 1720. And you had a senior central bank on board on all of those periods. Then 
the idea of just analyzing one of them and saying that the policymakers made an error is just so limited. You know, as we say in physics, you know, if you keep your database short enough, it'll fit your theory. So uh, <laughs> you get a big enough database, then it tells you what the way things work. And um, so, you know, the um, one on the other line that we like to use is that every bull market climbs a wall of worry. That's true. But then in a rush of enthusiasm, it vaults over the wall only to find Murphy waiting. And Murphy's law says that whatever can go wrong will go wrong. So that's where we are now. And uh, I, it's, it's hard to really say, kind of trust me on this one, but the, the, under, the, the orthodox understanding of the 1929 contraction is incomplete. They have not done enough research to make a proper conclusion. And if they then researched all the previous bubbles and post-bubble contractions, then you'd come to a proper conclusion that, hey, they happen. One of the other things that we tested years ago in the 70s on these great financial events is that you uh, we took the, um, like Warburg or these people, Wharton Business School, these uh, econometric models, you know, where they got 300 regression equations and all that sort of stuff, and cranked through the data leading up to the 1929 top and using the latest in uh, econometric modeling it wouldn't give you the reversal. And the reason why I wouldn't give the reversal is because when you get into uh, the final blow-off in uh, financial mania, all of the growth curves get skewed. And that distortion cannot be broken mathematically, so there's no computer model that will solve uh, the conclusion of a skewed growth curves. So then what you do then is, is overlay. So you say, okay, now when was the last time you had this particular item rocketing up? So this is where we use so many historical examples to say uh, that the trend is on or this is the model it's following and that sort of stuff. So it uh, it works. and uh, But it also gives you the perspective on policymaking, which much of it, I'm sad to say, seems to be contrived out of thin air. So, But I think your reader... I should say, listener, um, had the right questions, and I thank him for mentioning my name, but any serious researcher would know that the limit to any kind of hyperinflation is the money markets, and they fall apart. The guys at the central bank are going to get off off of their insanity. So, I'd love to sit you and uh, James Turk down in a room, and, and you can have this out. <laughs> Yeah, I've met uh, Turk at uh, one of those Committee for Monitor Research and Education meetings in New York a few years ago. And uh, he came up with a very good line, which was that uh, policymaking has become the barbaric relic, <laughs> whereas Keynes said it was gold was the barbaric relic. So. Of course. And I think this contraction is going to be severe. It will continue, and it will be enough to, as I said, uh, fix all of these weird notions about policymaking that you can manipulate currency or you can ma manipulate interest rates and always have a wonderful world. I mean, it's so much nonsense. Are you as well off holding cash as anything? 
Well, yeah, you know, it's the old saying, uh, Dominic, cash in a crash, but that requires some analysis as well because say you go to, you went to cash in July. Treasury bill rate was, oh, about 4.5%. So every rollover, you're now down to about 2%. So every rollover in cash equivalent, you're getting a lower interest rate. But let's say, well, at the moment so far, if you had gone to the long bond, that you would make money. But typically, once the contraction gets further along the line, the typical pattern, then the the loss of liquidity spreads out to, well, it destroys the corporate bond market. And then eventually, believe it or not, it destroys long governments, such as U.S. Treasuries. So then you have the problem of price declines if you're too far out in the yield curve. So... The happy place to be uh, on the yield curve is typically, if you don't want to do too much trading, is the four- to five-year maturity, in which case you avoid being too short maturity and and uh, getting pained on each rollover with lower interest rates because short rates will, the T-bill rate will fall back down to that 1% again. And then uh, also the long end, the rates can go up and price go down, so you're going to get hammered there. So... The four to five year maturity. Actually, most investors should be have a good position in those, in kind of avoiding a whole lot of equities and debt. Well, they've seen already to avoid lower grade debt, but they haven't yet figured out that at some point you have to avoid what they call higher grade debt because it's just not the risk in quality items. There's also the term risk. So this bond rally. the bond price could sort of stay up for uh, maybe a month or so yet, but the ideal position would be in the four- to five-year U.S. treasuries, even for Canadian accounts or Brit accounts or anywhere, because I think the U.S. dollar, as, as the contraction goes in further down the hole, that the U.S. dollar will strengthen. So, um, so you get a good play on the curve and then also on the currency. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Well, Bob, what can I say? We've uh, chatted for an hour. It's been a real pleasure yet again. <laughs> and uh, it's well, listen, we'll, we'll get. I might be coming to England in in late May, early June this year, and we should get together then. I'd love to do that. Do you, you keep me posted, and um, if you're not coming, we'll talk again. You know, over the phone. Very good. Anytime. Bob, uh, as we close, if you want to give out, uh, do you want to give out your website and uh, some more information for, yeah, for listeners? Uh, you can look at the website on the in the internet. It's institutionaladvisors.com, or you can get in there just by googling my name. I, I was quite surprised to recently discover that. You just Google Bob Hoy, and uh, you get into the system that way. It shows um, some interesting things, uh, major events. But uh, anything we put in there if uh, on a timely basis is usually a few weeks after the event. <clears throat> Excuse me. Otherwise, we'd be giving away the research. But it gives the track record. And uh, there's some uh, a humor page there with a number of cartoons, which some of the lines we dream up and have a cartoonist to draw them up. So, yeah, it's worth anybody taking a look at. Great stuff. Well, Bob Hoy, thank you very much. Very good, Dominic. We'll be talking to you again soon. Commodity Watch Radio is presented and produced by Dominic Frisby for Mindsight with music by Manolo Camp.
to discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our bulletin board at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com.